All right, we're live and we're rolling, and this is The Real Venture. I'm your co-host, Peyton. And I am your co-host, Luke, and we are entering the world of business by starting a few companies of our own. So we decided to create this podcast as a platform so that we could ask other successful entrepreneurs the questions that we need answered in order to help our business grow. Every single week, we are joined by CEOs, venture capitalists, artists, co-founders, and influencers, all with one thing in common, they're young entrepreneurs. The only thing I'm gonna need you to do is hit that subscribe button below so you never miss a conversation. Every single Wednesday, Luke and I are going to be right here and we can't wait for you to join us. Hey everyone, producer Cameron here again. We're back for season two and we're starting off hot with a great guest. We got Mike Smirklow. He's an entrepreneur, investor, as well as a part-time author. You can check out his new book, Mr. Monkey and Me, available on Amazon. It's a real talk guide for entrepreneurs who want to cut through the noise and cultivate a mindset that supports greatness. Most importantly, 100% of the proceeds of the book go to a charity Mark and his wife set up. The fund helps diverse and underrepresented students get a scholarship to study entrepreneurship at the University of Miami, Ohio. You can find Mike online at mikesmerkelo.com. That's S-M-E-R-K-L-O.com. There's a lot of great tools for entrepreneurs on that site. We recommend that all of you check it out. You can also check out nextcoastventures.com to learn more about what he does. This was a really great episode. Mike's a great storyteller, and he's got a lot of good ones about the early days in the dot-com bubble in Silicon Valley. Thanks again to everybody who's been listening through Season 1. We've got a lot of content stored up for Season 2, and we couldn't be more excited for the future right now. But without further ado, let's get into this episode. So, Mike, uh, you know, really excited to uh, to have you here. We really appreciate you coming in. Um, why don't we just, you know, start off with a little introduction? Why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Happy to. How long, how long do I have? You have all the time in the world. <laughs> all right. When I was a young boy. Um, so, quick background: I'm uh, I grew up in Toledo, Ohio, fellow Midwestern, like you all. Um, first person in my family ever go to college. Started my career professionally in financial services, was a, a CPA and an investment banker early on. Absolutely hated the job, but learned a ton. Um, and then I moved out to Silicon Valley in the late 90s, kind of the gold rush. We were talking a little bit about crypto, but that was the internet gold rush. Um, worked out there, got fortunate. My first operating job was with uh, a guy named Ben Horowitz and Mark Andreessen, two guys. Uh, they were starting a company called LoudCloud. I got to go work directly for Ben and Mark for a couple of years, all the way through IPO. I quit after the IPO, um, raised a small pool of capital to buy a business, uh, bought a small business, ran it for the next 12 and a half years, uh, everything through early stage capital all the way to taking it public. Ran as public company CEO for about three and a half years and then uh, retired, which we can talk about what that means <laughs> in the air quotes. Um, and then I moved to Austin, Texas to start Next Coast Ventures and I'm currently the co-founder of Next Coast Ventures. We're here, we invest in early stage technology companies. Awesome. And I'm Married and father of four children, most importantly. There we go. So let's, um, you know, let's start from, you know, the beginning when you, uh, you went to Miami University in, in Oxford, Ohio, which is uh, close, close to my heart as well. Um, I mean, was investment banking the, the path kind of, was that kind of what you studied? Is that kind of what you set your mind on? Um, you know, what, what took you out to New York to do that? Uh, and we should, by the way, point out that it is Friday afternoon that we're drinking wine. So yes. It's not 8 a.m. on a Thursday. Yeah. No, this, this I mean, is it's Monday morning. Yeah. yeah. I go to vodka on Thursday morning. So yeah. I have a good red wine. Um, no, actually, it was not. My, my goal was to make money. Um, I was, again, first person in my family ever to go to college. So I really just wanted to get educated to find something that I could apply my skills and, um, you know, can't really break out of the 
poverty and discord that I had grown up with. And so my really goal was just to try and get out, get some practical skills. I ended up being an accountant as what I studied, uh, largely because someone told me that it was a pretty good language for business. Mm-hmm. Um, I got a job in Chicago, suddenly made more than anyone else in my family at, at $26,000 a year. There was dinosaurs walking around, so you guys are very young, but there was dinosaurs, but I made $26,000 a year. I was like, holy shit, what am I going to do with all this money? Um, and I moved to Chicago, but it was really just a, to get out, try something, and try and make it better, something better in my life. Yeah, and, and I saw, so you, you spent some time at Lehman, is that correct, and Morgan Stanley. What was, you know, because obviously I haven't been able to experience kind of what finance was like back in the 90s before kind of great recession and things got a little bit more strict, but what was that environment like? Yeah, well, like to prepare for the interview, to put it in perspective, I watched Pretty Woman, like that old Richard Gere movie, The Prostitute. That's what I thought it was. My God, doing big deals or in Wall Street. Like that's what I thought it was. Um, You know, it was wearing Hermes ties, Brooks Brothers suits and working a hundred hour weeks, Mm -hmm. uh, literally. Not like the bullshit, it was like work a hundred hour week and stare at a computer and do spreadsheets. That's pretty much what it was. Uh, but it was a super interesting job because for me, culturally, it just got me to meet some really smart people that I'd never been exposed to. And then secondarily, I got to see the next level of business, whether it be M&A or financing. And it was, to me, I was like, holy cow, this is a world that uh, I didn't know existed. Yeah, well, and, and if you you know, you know think about it, I, you were working uh, at Morgan Stanley kind of early on in the dot-com sort of era, yep. is that right? Yeah, and so yeah, yeah. what kind of stuff did you see there that kind of led you to want to move out to Silicon yeah, Valley? Yeah, I mean, it was so I got the chance to move out after, I went to business school at Northwestern and I got a chance to move out to the Valley, largely because I just wanted to be around entrepreneurs. I knew in my core that someday I wanted to run something, I didn't know what, but I wanted to be in the, at the time, this is circa 1997, I wanted to be in the epicenter of what was happening. I kind of feel like right now, if you want to be an entrepreneur, and you're, guys, you're, you're in Austin, you're in New York, that's where I would be or maybe the Valley, still greater LA, but there's like three or four pockets where you want to be in. And at the time, Silicon Valley was the place. And when I went out there, what I saw was, I saw these amazing, and it was the wild, wild west of technology. Um, no, there was no woke culture, there was no PC, it was quite the opposite. <laughs> but what I saw suddenly was, I saw these people that were building great businesses, having a ton of fun and making a bunch of money. And the third part was, you know, a side project, but they were just, they were doing crazy shit. Mm-hmm. And it was just, want to go try and start an internet company? Let's go do it. And that was so contagious that got me hooked. And I w- thought I wanted to be an entrepreneur. After a couple of years out there, it's like, okay, how, how can I get on this path? So what was the timeline um, for you getting out there and then kind of everything going south from a like, market perspective? Like, yep. Were you there for that? Yeah, it certainly was. So I went there in 97, um, did, did like a year and a half years in investment banking. And that's where I went. I had this crazy story. Um, I had heard that Mark Andreessen, so Mark, even at the time, if you don't know Mark from Andreessen Horowitz, he was on the cover of Time Magazine when he was 22. He's 28, they had just sold Netscape to AOL for something like seven or eight billion dollars and they were getting ready to start a business. And they needed to raise some capital. I'm this junior banker and they said, Mike, you need to go meet Mark. And he says, how about meeting me for breakfast on a Saturday morning at Hobie's, which is a kind of legendary breakfast spot. Mark Andreessen, like, oh shit. Like, you know, this is not the welcome to the NFL. And about, um, I'll actually answer your question about, 45 minutes of the conversation, and I'm literally just trying to sound, not sound stupid. The whole conversation, I'm just nodding and 
<laughs> yeah, yeah, I agree, I agree, I agree. You know, good way to not look stupid or look really stupid. But he, um, you know, and he finally said, well, I got a better idea. Why don't you come work for us? And I was like, uh, yes, please. Um, and so I, I made that jump right at the end of 99. I had to wait to get my bonus from Morgan Stanley. Um, funny story on that. I had gotten, um, I got a bonus that year to be paid $500,000 in total. And you're talking like, I told you $26,000 was the high water mark. Yeah, so that's a big number. Big number. Back in the day. Not anymore. That's pocket change. So I get that and I call my mom, my racing mom. I was like, I, I'm going to quit. I'm going to work for this guy named Mark Andreessen. And, you know, I, then she's like, well, how much you make? What are you making? And I told her. And my mom, old Catholic woman in Toledo, Ohio, was like, $500,000? <laughs> Literally, she's like, you could be shoving, shoveling shit in hell for that kind of money. What are you doing? You know, great parental advice. I said, I don't know. I just, I want to go do this. Um, and so I quit Morgan Stanley and took this job. And literally, to finally answer your question, 12 months later, the dot-com bubble burst. We went from, I had literally been working with Mark and he would be like, 20 people called me today that want to give us money. Your job is to call 19 back and tell them no. And this one firm we made, it was like order taking. Mm -hmm. To a year later, we were begging for capital, literally begging for capital. And the funny story about that, Ben talks about it in his great book, um, the IPO, we had, we barely got it done, and that gave the company enough breathing room to stay in business. So I got to see full height and mania to depth and despair. And what, what was the, so I know a bit about Netscape, but not too much about LoudCloud. What was that business, and what was kind of your main role in that? Yeah, I was, um, so I was, uh, I basically was business development, which meant I followed Mark around. For the first year, I literally, <laughs> it was like, hey, we're going to go meet uh, Jeff Bezos, literally. He's like, we're going to go meet Jeff Bezos, and you need to be at the jet board. And we flew up on Mark's jet. And your job is to take notes and, and action items. That was my first pretty cool job. But, yeah, so LoudCloud Vision was to be, it was kind of common now, but in retrospect, it was going to be uh, a data center operation software and infrastructure play. Somebody call it AWS yeah. now, but it was brilliant because this is how far ahead these guys were in 1999. They basically planned to automate the entire data center layer from storage to capacity to bandwidth, all that. Um, they were dead on. There was just a bunch of key technologies that weren't in place. Yeah. Um, so my funny war story on that is we actually sat down with Bezos. True story, sat there. Mark's pitching them on why they should give some of their operations to let Am let LoudCloud run some of their operations. Bezos looks at him, and Jaffe's there. Like, he's got, I mean, Jaffe's not running it. Like, and there's, interesting. No, nothing came of it, except for he started yeah. AWS like three years later. <laughs> yeah. so I'm not saying that came from it, but it's pretty, pretty interesting. So you, so like you said, you saw the, the highest highs and the lowest lows. Why did you still want to go on to start your own business, still stay in that world? Because, you know, I mean, obviously the highs are, are great, but like the lows are, they're a bummer. And like, I think it deters a lot of people. So why did you continue on with your entrepreneurial journey? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, I, I tend to think that there's something just inside most entrepreneurs that um, makes them unemployable in a weird way. Mm -hmm. Like you guys are young. I mean, I'll ask you all, like why have you decided to, to go down this path? I'll turn it back to you. But I just felt in my core that I wanted to lead something and I wanted to build something and I wanted to be part of a, a culture. Um, I don't know exactly why, because it was the dot-com burst happened. 
Then 9-11 happened. We're 20 years away from the anniversary tomorrow, so you guys were, you know, two and four or whatever. <laughs> but, but that was a pretty legendary, turbulent event, and it mm-hmm. was a horrible time to start a business. We're talking yeah. early 2000. But in my core, I just felt like I didn't, I'd, I'd suddenly made a lot of money more than I ever thought it would, but it didn't matter. Mm-hmm. What mattered to me was being part of something, leading something, um, and being part of something that disrupted. Yeah. Like a, like a fulfillment thing. Like you just total fulfillment. Yeah. yeah. Even, yeah. even though I had no financial rationale for it. Yeah, absolutely. That makes sense. Why are you guys doing it? What, what would you say? Why are you all going down this path? Um, so for me, it's like, I see sort of, you have two kind of options when you go out and you want to do something for the world. You want to make the world a better place. You can either contribute to the way that an existing like structure or somebody is set up for you to contribute to the world, right? You can go be an investment banker. You can do your thing to get that done, or you can figure out new ways to expand the pie, to figure out ways that new wealth can be created, new value can be created. Um, and sort of like you said, uh, being unemployable, I think I'm a little too impatient, <laughs> a little too, uh, uh, like to do things my way to be completely conformist to something like that. And, and, um, the value that I bring to any job or any uh, a- a- encounter is being able to think of new ways to do things and think of places that the world is missing something that it doesn't have yet. Um, and you can't really do that when you're working for somebody else, you know? Yeah. At least it's a lot harder. Yeah. No, and, and you know, I mean, piggybacking kind of off that, it, you know, like, like you said, being a part of something and building something, I think with, like, my background in sports, I, I love the, the team aspect, and I, I really think, like, in the business world, the entrepreneurial world is the closest you can get to kind of building a team and, and achieving success and going out and winning. Um, it's much harder to see that whole picture when you're kind of a cog in the machine. Yeah. But when you are, you know, I mean, whether or not you're the, the founder or you're, you know, you're you're heavily involved in the process, you can really see your efforts like producing fruit, right? Yeah. And then tying into your fulfillment thing. I think it's the closest you can get to that. So. Um, you know, and then, you know, identifying a city like Austin or New York to come and do that. It's the perfect place, perfect ecosystem, get to meet a bunch of great people like yourself and then kind of start to put together those teams and experiences and, you know, kind yeah. of start chasing it. There's an old, I don't know, you have that comedian who does like, you know, you might be a redneck if, like, yeah. Yeah, Jeff Foxworth, whatever his mm-hmm. name is. Yep. Like, yeah. It's like, you might be a redneck if, like, I, I kind of feel it's the same way with the entrepreneur. Like, you might be an entrepreneur if you know, you're impatient. <laughs> you like to do things your own way. You don't like to have a boss. I mean, there's some attributes that really do become germane to the job. Um, and then also for me, I looked at it, um, I remember driving on this shitty road in Toledo, Ohio, where I grew up. It was my senior year. I talk about this in a book, but I lived behind an oil refinery and this radio commercial came on and it said, every day, every day, eight hours of your life is gonna be spent sleeping. So you should have a great mattress. And it was a weird moment because I'm driving and probably the gray dreariness of Toledo, Ohio, <laughs> and the smell of an oil refinery probably put me in a very philosophical mood at like 17. But I was like, huh, what are the other eight hours of, you know, the other 16 hours of your day? And at my company, Service Source, we used to talk about this. And I said, you know, I want to have the eight hours or more, or, you know, if you're an entrepreneur, it's gonna be more like 14, but I want those hours to mean something. And as I got a little bit into my career, I just thought, I don't, I don't want to work for someone else. I don't want someone else's dream. And I want to be something interesting and, and really exciting. And so you think about your own life to live, hopefully you're going to spend eight hours with family and friends every day. Maybe not every day, but eight hours doing something you really are passionate about and then, you know, buy a good mattress. 
Buy a good mattress. There you go. If, if the listeners got nothing else away from that, <laughs> go buy a good mattress. Absolutely. 100%. And, and so um, I actually think it's really interesting the way that you went about building a business um, is different than, you know, the, the uh, kind of stereotype or the way that a lot of us look back on people who have started things, right? The Jeff Bezos is the world, Mark Zuckerberg's, the yep. people who, um, right? You went out and you bought a business that was what, 20, 30 employees? Exactly. Like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so first I have a question of why, one, did you have the confidence for that? Why did you think that that was the right move? And then two, like why that business of all the businesses you could have bought? Yeah. Um, well, I had one problem with my path entrepreneurship. It was a pretty big one. Actually, I didn't, I wanted to be an entrepreneur. I just didn't have a good idea. So that's kind of a big idea. I don't know if you guys think about that. As oh well. yeah. I think a lot of people will resonate with yeah, that. Probably. Right? Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. So, so there's another path to becoming an entrepreneur and I, I heard about it from a friend of a friend who said you can raise a small pool of capital and you can look for business to buy. And for a variety of reasons, and it was in the Valley, highly technical area, I thought this may be a great way for me to go achieve my entrepreneurial dreams without having to come up with an idea. Mm -hmm. And I tend to think for my skill set, I'm probably not the PowerPoint person. I'm probably more like take PowerPoint and make it better. So that was my, my uh, thesis behind it. In retrospect, I didn't think that much about it. You know, there's something else about being um, yeah, ignorant to bliss, yeah. you know, yeah, yeah, and, yeah. And, and I always like look back at risk. It's kind of like writing this damn book. Like if I had known how hard it was going to be, I probably wouldn't have done it. Mm -hmm. But I'll never forget. I was at a restaurant and a guy uh, who ended up becoming my business partner told me about this model. And I said, I'm going to fucking do that. Mm, yeah. He's like, well, well, what do you mean? I'm like, yeah, I'm doing that. Like, I want to go do exactly what you just described. And uh, he became my business partner and uh, was a wonderful contribution. I mean, he and I worked hand in glove and it just was a great path for me. Yeah, that's awesome. I, I'm curious, like when you were looking at different businesses to buy, you ended up going with a B2B SaaS company, yeah, yeah. which looking back on it, like tons of very successful B2B SaaS companies have, have grown over the last 20 years. But um, was there anything in particular about that one that you were like, this is for me? Yeah, great question. I, I failed to mention that. I mean, so we are, are the whole per a little bit of background, what we did is we just, for anyone who's thinking about entrepreneurship as a different way, it's called a search fund, but we basically rented cheap office space and just started dialing for dollars. Again, this is a um, 2002 timeframe, again, a long time ago, but we were just looking for a great business to buy. But some of the things that we looked at and why we actually got lucky with this one is we wanted one that had recurring revenue way back before recurring revenue was a thing. <laughs> We wanted it to be, um, we really focused on customers. Like, do customers absolutely love this? And I still think today that's been pounded into my head. And we found this great business called Service Source. The founders had gotten it to a couple million in revenue, but really didn't want to scale it. And so we were able to negotiate a, a very attractive purchase price. But I think the, to answer your real question, it was the customer experience this company brought to bear. Their customers raved about them. And that was probably the number one deciding factor. Well, and that's the, the, the you know, I think it was Mark Andreessen who coined the term product market fit or somebody in, in yeah. Andreessen Horowitz. But the, that idea of, of, you know, taking maybe the first year, two years, three years to really figure out what that pain point is, what the thing is that you can offer people. Um, and if you're able to almost buy product market fit and yep. focus on what you're good at as an operator and as a, ultimately, I don't know if you consider yourself a founder of the business taking it the last 12 years of its yeah. existence. But yeah, I did not, not a founder, but, but I was a, you know, came in and, and ran it from there. But I think, you know, the founder, the product market fit is such an interesting concept, mm -hmm. especially for, I think your audience is thinking about being an entrepreneur or, or early days of it. Um, in my day job at Next Coast, I mean, we see way too many people that have an idea 
and fail to understand how busy the world is. Mm. And we counsel entrepreneurs all this is like, is anybody calling, very few products is someone calling you up and saying, can I buy that today? Yeah. So can you break through the noise? Can you break through inertia? Like, is it something that's going to have a highly differentiated customer experience? Mm -hmm. And if not, man, your job's gonna be hard. Yeah. And so we really encourage entrepreneurs to push themselves to think about, is this a nice to have? Yeah. Whether it be box wine, which we're thoroughly enjoying, I'm an investor <laughs> in full disclosure, but is amazing. Um, or it be a B2B solution, like how do you get something that really is dramatically different than the status quo? And I think a, a nice continuation of, of the product market fit ideas, uh, we've talked about it before on here, but the toothbrush test, is the product something that you would use once or twice a day and does it make your life better? Which in the case of the, the toothbrush, like, yeah, I hope you're using it once or twice a day and I think it would make your life better. Most but people. you know, like the, the closest, uh, you know, thing we can draw to is like the Yeti. Like, are you going to drink every single beverage out of the Yeti? No, but when you use it once a day, it's going to do exactly yep. what it needs to do. And I think that that ties into product market fit because, you know, we have, uh, you know, just being down here, we've met so many different people in the tech world and we have some friends that work at AWS and they have people call them and be like, Hey, yep. like we missed our meeting. I want to set it up because I want to buy like that is yep. an item like that. And then we also have friends who, you know, cold call every single day and nobody ever returns their calls. Yep. 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 I, I think that it was Marcus listening to a podcast. He's talking about like, you know, assume the world is hyper busy, right? Mm -hmm. And there's so much innovation happening. It's just great time to be an entrepreneur, but it's a great time to be an entrepreneur because capital is abundant. The infrastructure to start a business has never been easier. Yeah. Yeah. You, you want to go start a Enterprise SaaS solution, AWS, other tools, you can be up and running in nothing compared to even five to seven years ago, let alone 15. Yeah. That's good. But I'm okay. assuming everybody else can do that. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. So UI, UX, well, I mean, whatever it is, is like that's the table stakes now. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So how do you get something, to your point, that really has someone go, the wow factor is so fucking hard to get to. Yeah. And I, and I also, like, I mean, the other thing I would say that though for, for entrepreneurs is, but don't get pissed if your idea doesn't seem so big. Like Yeti is a great example. I don't know the Yeti founders, but I'm quite convinced it's like, yes, it's going to be the best experience you have. You may only use it once a day, but it's so much better than the red solo cup, mm -hmm. right? I mean, that's, that's, that's what you're baking. Yep. You know? yep. do, I, do I pour this beer in a red solo cup or beer, well, water, iced tea, or into a <laughs> Yeti? Um, I only do that when I'm driving my kids to school. I put the, the, the beer, beer in there. Yeah. But like, you know, like you look at that and you go, that's how much difference it has to be. And then you go, all right, but is everybody drinking a Yeti cup? No, at first it's gonna be like hunters and people hunting and fishing. Mm -hmm. And then you can go from there. And so my point is like, having a very differentiated solution is more critical than how big the market is. Because I think you have, you have latitude from there, but too many entrepreneurs go, ah, the market isn't that big enough, it's never gonna be Facebook. I mean, Zuckerberg started Facebook to meet girls Harvard. at Harvard, right? Yeah. I mean, that's yep. what it was. So have something differentiated, but don't get concerned if the market doesn't seem to be massive overnight. Yeah, what if, what if you're creating a product that, that doesn't have a market yet, right? You know, it's something that's so innovative, something that's so new, nobody knows they need it yet. What kind of path do you go along there, do you think? It's a, it's a tough <laughs> no, I mean, this is like, you know, this is the Steve Jobs, yeah. you so yeah, famous Steve Jobs. Like, you know, if people knew what they wanted, they would go do it. Yeah. Um, I think that's an interesting test, but I think you have to be careful because, mm -hmm. I mean, the hardest thing about entrepreneurship, certainly in innovation, what, what we do is, you know, it's going to happen. It's timing. Mm 
Like in my day job at, at Next Coast, it is not so much like, is this a big idea? It's almost all about timing, like too early, too late. And so I think like part of that test is, yes, you may have no market for it or no one knows they need it. But when you're doing, if you're a consumer, it's like, can you do some product market testing? And someone goes, wow, mm -hmm. then you might have something. What? But if you're so far out there that it's like, I don't even know why I would ever use that. Yeah. It's going to be a long road. And it's pretty interesting because I'm working on a little bit of stuff in crypto. And one of the biggest, I guess, themes that I've seen are people saying, how are we going to bring crypto to mass markets? How are we going to make crypto something that everybody can engage with on a more uh, frequent basis um, and more specifically decentralized finance? Yep. Um, and so a lot of folks that I see are working on, you know, very slick UI, UX experiences for one click interfaces to these, you know, all these protocols in in uh, decentralized finance uh, but the problem is like people aren't ready for that they, they just don't they don't want to trust it they don't care about it people yeah. don't they just want to put their money in their bank and live their lives right and yeah. so it's like yes you can do all of this awesome uh development work but nobody's going to use it maybe in five years but i think DeFi might be the poster child right now of when i was young entrepreneur it was like internet you know like all yeah. these ideas about you could put stuff on the web you could do this hey, could do are people really going to deliver groceries like web man this is like way back for you guys are born like no oh yeah they are actually yeah. it just took 20 years yeah right and there are people like yeah. all these all the things that are are in vogue now there was a version go back and study 1999 i guarantee you just about everything that i can think of on the consumer side there was something that tried to do that it's 22 years too early. You didn't have a cell phone. You didn't have bandwidth. You didn't have, like, there was a bunch of technology. Most didn't have computers. Yeah. yeah. You know, so, so I think, like, DeFi is such a good example of that because you go, I, I was just listening, like, Wells Fargo, the old online bank, has, like, you know, generated, it's like, $60 billion a year in, in revenue, right? To put your money in a bank and use an ATM to get it. Yeah. You know that's going to get disrupted. Yeah. You know it. That can't yeah. be the future. That can't be. <laughs> And they have like hundreds of thousands of employees. But how long is it going to take until, you know, there is a little bit of the, what's great about being from the Midwest. Your family's still there? Mm -hmm. Yep. The greatest thing I always saw being in the Valley is I'd go back to the Midwest. It was my, it was my balance test. Mm -hmm. Yep, you know? 100%. And you go back to the Midwest, yeah, talk to your grandma or your aunt. Hey, do you want to put all your savings that's in Wells Fargo <laughs> yeah. right now in the... In, in, in this thing. Yeah. It's going to be really great. You can spend it anywhere. See what your grandma or aunt says. That yeah. kind of gives you a perspective. Of and I'll tell you, I've tried that. And the first comment is, isn't Bitcoin risky? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We, were, we were at a restaurant. Um, but if you're in El Salvador, <laughs> you can use story. it for everything. Exactly. We were, uh, we were at a restaurant and, you know, I was like, I was just trying to talk to my dad, just about, generally just about crypto. And, you know, I was like, hey, you know, you should just buy a couple Bitcoin. Like, you know, just move some of your traditional investment into that. He was like, no, no, no. And the way overheard us talking and the guy's like hey if you want to pay your check in bitcoin like i'll take it and my dad was like so confused he's like why, why would he want that i'm like because it's, it's the future it's, it's things are going to happen that way it's the future everyone you know i mean like i think we all know where the future is going to be not always but for a lot of it just how long is it going to take yeah what's needed to make it happen i think that's a really interesting thing like how much for example the iphone like enabled things like uber and even airbnb really and all yeah. these things that yeah, that could have existed back when you were starting yeah. your business. And they just, I, I'm sure things like Uber had tried to take off, right? I had read something about All taxi. sorts of, there was tax, I mean, there was like taxis.com or something like blackcar.com. But I mean, you know, you think about the other thing was just the phone, then you go to ubiquitous Wi-Fi, then you go to GPS. Oh mm -hmm. yeah, GPS and geolocating. Oh, that was a critical factor, but you know, it's just yeah. generational. Yeah. yeah. So circling, um, 
going back to your, um, you know, your journey of, of going out and, and, and buying your business, you talked a little bit about your search fund. And I think that um, something that a lot of young entrepreneurs complain about right off the bat is not having any money, right? You know, you have to go out and, and raise money. And when you have an actual product or a business, you can go pitch that along with, you know, yourself and the team. But when you don't have a business in mind, you're not sure what you're going to buy yet. In you know, in your case, how did you go out and raise money and what were the challenges um, around that? Yeah, well, I mean, it, there is there is a, a vehicle, if people are interested in this, Next Coast, I'm, I'm here to, but like Next Coast has a fund that backs searchers. So if you go to nextcoast.com, nextcoastventures.com, you'll see something called ETA, Entrepreneur Through Acquisition. So out there, if you're interested, go check it out. There's a bunch of material. So it's becoming a more, certainly compared to when I did it, it's becoming a more uh, consistent path to entrepreneurship. Mm -hmm. But in my case, um, you know, like everything, you start with, I always think about fundraising, there's like three circles. There's like the friends and family you know, rich uncle Fred or somebody, if you can't get, and even I was, you know, came from nothing, but if you can't find four or five people to back you, mm -hmm. that's probably a pretty good sign that maybe your idea is completely wacky. Right. <laughs> you know, yeah. but like you should be able to find a couple people to give you a little bit of money. And then there as a basis, then we use that to go out to the next wave of people, which would be, you know, direct or indirect contacts. And then the third part is going to institutional. But I think as an entrepreneur, maybe to answer your question a bit broadly, Think about where your circle of, you know, draw a map of people that know you. <laughs> it's a it's a very complicated McKinsey chart. They know me and they have money. Yeah. <laughs> right? yep. Spend all your time in that upper right quadrant, yep. you know? Yep. That's a good place to start. From there, then then you can start to branch off. But you know, I don't know. It's probably the simplest way to think about it. Mm -hmm. Sure, yeah, yeah. So it, it's I'm very... dropping some mad McKinsey charts here. There you go. Sure. Well, yeah. Know you know. have money. <laughs> Boom. <laughs> Top right corner. It's like one of those uh, how are we different charts on your pitch deck. Yeah. Um, but you, uh, I guess thinking about the fundraising like that, the assumption I think that a lot of younger folks have is it's almost like a cold call VC type thing, right? You just email yep. the partner at a fund that you've heard of that maybe you have some yeah, totally. loose connection with, do you, do you recommend that as somebody who yeah. also is on that you side? Know what? You I know? think um, in six years, um, the number of cold call, well, I'll give you guys a question. Let's have some fun on a Friday afternoon. What do you think the percentage of close rate is on cold call email to funding at a venture firm? I would guess less than 5%. Yeah, yeah less than one percent. I don't know with a smile on your face, though. I feel like <laughs> yeah, I feel like it's a true question. Like ten percent, zero, zero. Oh, zero. Okay. Because, uh, but here's why, faith. though. Well, no, but here's why, though. But this is really, I mean, hopefully, this is a, a very specific piece of information. Um, I'm on LinkedIn. I've written a book. Uh, people know me. You're in Austin. Like, if you can't find one or two degrees of separation, sure. then you really don't understand what entrepreneurship's about. Yeah. And I mean that, like, um, I don't. That sounds worse than I meant it to sound. It means like it, it, the hustle is what it's all about. Like, can you find a way? What we're looking for at Nexcus is, is the market pretty big? Do you have an innovative, innovative solution? But most importantly, is the entrepreneur going to be, we use this term called glass eater, mm. um, a really horrible term, but basically like smash up the glass, take some ketchup and mustard. Are you going to eat that glass? Cause that's what entrepreneur, it's, it, it's, it's crazy. It's crazy. It's gritty. And so if, if when you think about fundraising, and you said, I want to go meet Mike or Tom at Nexco's, the two founders. In this town, there's enough people that you should be able to get a direct contact with mm -hmm. and get a warm intro. Mm -hmm. And if you can't get that, that's probably a good indication that you don't understand the grit or the hustle. 
Yeah. Um, and I think each town, like there's nothing about like special about next coast or the town, but I think that's just kind of what it's going to take. And so if you're listening right now and you're about ready to send out 30 emails to investment just firms, send all them like, uh, <laughs> send them to Tom. <laughs> no, but like if you're going to send them out, like you're wasting your time. Yeah. And so spend a few more minutes trying to find a drink. Well, I think that's a good, that's, that's very helpful for people because I'd imagine most of them don't want to do that, right? Like it's, uh, I, I sold insurance when I was in high school. Yep. Um, and that was all of that, right? That, all you're doing is cold calling people. Um, and it's horrible because even if you have a 2% success rate on that, you can make money, but uh, it's embarrassing and it is like very much a waste of your time when there's much more effective ways like getting warm intros to, to folks and things like that. You can make better use of your time, yeah. um, spend it innovating or whatever. Yeah, else. and unfortunately my job, um, and it just, I think again, I'm trying to give advice to the audience is we have a, a, a privacy seven, 800 to a thousand pitches a year, including what comes in from the trends. And we do get a bunch of those to warm introductions, whatever. And we fund, you know, four to five companies a year. So that math really sucks. Yeah. Now, but I say that like that can be discouraging, but that just means you, but you only need one firm if you're looking for venture capital to say yes at the start. And so just know going in that the odds really suck. Okay, well then what do you do? So how do you increase the odds? You volume. start <laughs> volume and warm introductions and and customizing your pitch. And the other thing I give is stupid advice, like, hey, if you're gonna come into Next Coast Ventures, go to our website. We have all our themes listed there. We all got our team background. Do a little bit of research so that when you do get the meeting, you're able to utilize the time. How does our business fit into your yeah, themes? Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. What are, but volume doesn't really work. I mean volume, I'm sorry. Just blasting out yeah, emails and, and LinkedIn, you know, hey, can I tell you about my pitch? Yeah, it's probably not going to get you where you want to be. So, you know, obviously then the, the cold call emails, the, the LinkedIn volume shooting, what are some other major red flags that people kind of display right off the bat? And, you know, out of your thousand pitches, you kind of dismiss them a little quicker. Well, I think it's, it's good. So, I mean, first of all, it's, um, you know, every firm has at least a, some good idea of what they're looking for. So I think you can kind of do some research. I think where people mistake is, um, and I've written some blogs about this, is I think if you come in, you know, do a little research on the firm to, so you understand it. Um, understanding uh, things I see often that drive me a little bit batty is, do you have any competition? No, we don't have any competition. Well, everyone's got competition, so don't be afraid. You know, putting competition in the deck. Um, I think being too, we, we want to see confidence and we want to see, I want to see confidence and I want to see that look in the eye that's like I'm gonna fucking make this happen like that is more important than most think but then balance that with like knowing it's gonna be some hard rationality. no yeah like bring some rational thought into it yeah right I, I used to say to my investors when I pitched them this is a long time ago but I would look I'd end the meeting and I did this with Benchmark I did this with General Atlantic who's tonic and harder to do with the IPO but I'd look and I'd end the meeting like I'm going to make this happen or you can pull my dead body out of my office. Mic drop. No laugh, no stare. And it was done for effect, but afterwards my investors like, we weren't sure if you were serious. Yeah. And I was, it was like, they, I'm not sure I wasn't either. Like yeah. I was not going to quit and I worked way too hard and I did a bunch of dumb things and you know, cost me a lot on my personal side that I've written about this book, but there is something about that. You want to see that look in the eye that says like, fucking, I'm going to, I'm going to make this work. Mm -hmm. But then when I ask you a question, okay, well, that's great that you're committed. What about this, this, and this? I want to see your ability to step that passion back a bit, 
So yeah, that's a good point. Now here's how we're gonna address competition or inertia or blah, blah, blah. Sure. Do, do people come in with their hair on fire and just try to you know, win you over in, in that regard and then you probably throw them off with that? You know, like <laughs> a- asking them actually about the business kind of. Uh, uh, I know, I probably should, we should probably see more of that. No, no, no. Yeah. If anything, we see a little bit of, you know, no, I don't think so. I, 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 hopefully we're not intimidating. I mean, we've all been, my firm, we've all been operators before. Mm-hmm. So a little bit different. We've been entrepreneurs. We've pitched. So our biggest mantra is like respect the hell out of entrepreneurs because you, you all are. It's the hardest job in the world. I think it's the best job in the world, but it's so fucking hard. And so our ethos is always like respect, ask challenging questions, and if we say no, which we do most of the time, we're going to try and give you. A, we're going to do it quickly and tell you why. Sure. Um, which hopefully then you take it and say, okay, fuck it. Those next guys, coast guys, or people were wrong and. Um, but I learned something and yeah, go prove us wrong. Yeah. What, um, it happens all the time. Yeah. And you know, I mean, you hear a lot of people talk about like get comfortable with no, and it's something that a, a lot of entrepreneurs, I think it's the baptism by fire, right? You're going to get showered in no's at the beginning, but not every no means no, not every single no means no forever. Um, sometimes no's are no's not right now. And you know, you come back and you refine and you figure out what you were missing, take the feedback, like yep. you said, and then you come back with, a slightly different product and maybe it's not a no next time. Yeah. Or yes. And yes. And I think the other thing is you should feel like if you're, especially you're pitching a venture capitalist, you spend time with them when, and if they say no, I think it's full on to say, I'd love to know what I, what I missed, mm-hmm. but do that in a genuine way. Like here's what, what's challenging. If you're like, cause I, when I say no, which I can do all the time, like I'm happy to give you feedback. And some people take me up on it and they're like, yeah, but here's what I think you miss. And they're still selling. I'm like, no, no, the ship has sailed and I'm yeah. sure I've missed something. But more like use it as a learning experience. Mm-hmm. Like what did, you, what did you hear in my pitch or what did you hear about the story that got you nervous? And I think that's where no becomes, okay, I'm not going to try and sell you against no, but I'm going to learn from the no. And how like after a while, if you hear no 30 times in a row, that's a pretty reflective moment. Like, hmm, maybe I yeah. just have a really bad idea. Maybe this isn't no. Yeah. There's a lot of really bad ideas. Yeah. I mean, I've had them. I have them still today. I'm filled with bad ideas. Yeah. Um, so you, uh, I guess, you know, I, I love thinking about venture funds as businesses uh, in and of themselves, right? Like, I think a lot of people look at it and it's just like a pot of money and people are just like sitting there, you know, making decisions arbitrarily about who to throw money at and, and all this stuff. But like... You, you call yourself a founder, which is obviously true because you started the business, but I think the mindset of the venture firm being a business, what steps do you take to kind of address some of those same questions that you're looking at people, right? How do you differentiate yourself? How yep. do you um, make a difference and make a change in the way that you want to? Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's really, it's a great question and we spend a lot of time on it. I mean, the, the weird thing about venture is um, it's a highly competitive business. And, and there are a lot of people out there, a lot of money out there. Great for the entrepreneur. I mean, candidly, it's, a, it's much more, if you have a good idea in an interesting space, you have no problem yeah. getting interest. Um, and so for us, we spend a lot of time on that. And, and, you know, again, everyone has a differentiation point. Our general thesis is how can we, what resources can we bring to bear to help the entrepreneur? That's what we spend all of our time on. Um, it is not Shark Tank, as my kids think they do. You know, I think yeah. I'm... Mark Cuban, no, thumbs up, <laughs> go. Um, it, it's, and anything, it's the opposite, which is, do we know something about the business they brought forward? Is it something that we think, you know, us or what we call our expert network, we have 150 people that are, have an economic interest in our fund that we call expert networks, could they help? 
we have these things called company building playbooks, um, which we've, we've productized as, as company builders and say, okay, you know, here's some things that you could have resources to. Mm-hmm. So hopefully as an entrepreneur, you say, okay, that's going to help me accelerate. Uh, but at the end of the day, you're also like, uh, you take money from a venture firm, you're getting into a multi-year relationship. Yeah. Yeah, this like is not like, yeah, this is not like, hey, I really like you. Do you want to go on another date? This is like five to ten years. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's and like, it could be a prison sentence. Do you ever, do you ever turn away? Not com- for me, but for the other venture capitalists yeah. out there. Yeah, that's right. Um, do you ever turn away companies that you think like, oh, that actually might be a good investment, but I'm not sure we're the best people to help them? All the time. All the time. Especially now with like, with, with there's um, either, well, two reasons. Um, if it's a space that there's deep knowledge required, um, and or if we think the cat were, were a mile size fund, and there's certainly some ideas, like let's say you wanted to pitch me a great idea on electric vehicles, okay? Here's what I'd say. Huge market, clearly going to be the future. Um, big and still early enough, but unfortunately you're gonna need like 800 million to a billion dollars to, to run that business, and we have a $200 million fund. So I think a lot of times what we're thinking also about is capital efficiency. Is this something that we, A, can we help? And B, is that the type of business where we're purpose-built to help? And if not, there's a lot of great firms out there. Yeah, and and, um, kind of on the same vein of how do you like uh, make you provide value, how do you showcase that value as well, is something Andreessen Horowitz has done very well, which is like the content creation, the media, creating um, you know a, a name for yourself in a, like the knowledge space. Do you, I, I'm seeing you have a blog as well. Would you say you pulled a good bit of that from kind of seeing other people do it? Did you just want to start producing content? Like why, what, yeah, why, why do it? Why do you do it? I don't know. It's a good question. more why. Yeah. I didn't know this would be a psychological test. Um, you know, for me, I started actually my content and blogging after, uh, I think it was therapy after. So I, so I got fired and you read the book. Like I didn't. I say I retired. Basically, I had a disagreement so with my board. So we're revisiting the air quotes. I'm using now. all the air quotes, all of them now. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I had a mutual agreement with my board, but at the end of the day, long, boring story, I came to a disagreement with my board and they said, it's time for you to go. And I said, I think you're right. That exact quote with one of my mentors, Bruce Dunleavy, founder of Benchmark, still a dear friend, called me up and said, Mike, I think it's time to go. And I said, Bruce, I think it's right. Yep. Having said that, Two weeks later, there was a press release announced that Mike has stepped down and, you know, stepped down. No CEO steps down, let's yeah. be honest, yeah. right? Yeah. You know, it's, like, it's like no head coach ever steps down. Yeah. They're dragged steps out of your office. Down. Yeah. yeah, you're dragged out of your office. And it was, it was so right, but for me then, I suddenly went from running a 3,000-person public company with locations around the world to taking my kids to school and trying to tell my wife. It was a really good marital, you guys aren't married yet, but the really good thing is to bring your CEO leadership skills to your home front and start <laughs> suggesting to your wife how she might be able to optimize the <laughs> workflow. It doesn't go well. I love it. But that's where I was. And so I just started, um, I started blogging and I started writing about the mental aspect of, of leadership and about entrepreneurship. And from there it turned into blog and then turned into book. And now I just do it for, um, you know, somewhat therapy and hopefully give them some, some advice. So you did it before it was cool. Now everyone does it. So. <laughs> I, don't know if it's, I don't know if cool would ever be applied to my writing, but yeah, I did it. And, uh, but it really is, I, again, I think the world needs more entrepreneurs. We know, need more diversity in entrepreneurship and we need more mentally healthy entrepreneurs. And we get so many damn examples of entrepreneurs gone wild in a bad way. Mm. You know, what do you think about WeWork? What do you think about Uber? What do you think about just some of the asshole stuff that happens? Mm-hmm. 
So how do you how do you get people that are actually a, able to do the job, and when they are able to achieve some success, be healthy and be thoughtful and give back? And I don't know if I've done that, but at least that's what I'm trying to frame the mental aspect of it. Definitely. Do you do you see the um, uh, one of the things I've seen in the last like year or so, just reading Wall Street Journal or whatever it may be, um, the increased competition from like hedge funds coming down from public markets to compete with venture funds does that impact you at all or are you not late enough stage where that yeah matters? we're lucky we're lucky in that most of our most of our businesses were kind of product market fit happening and mm-hmm. we're usually in the first or second institutional check-in so for now we're not seeing that I think we're benefiting it from it because a lot of our companies our portfolio companies as they hit stride are benefiting from that like a huge valuation but it's a yeah it's 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 bonkers yeah um and i think what's being missed a little bit uh soapbox time is everything has to have an exit at some point and yeah. the risk for entrepreneurs i tell entrepreneurs all this time and i think they think i'm trying to negotiate price i'm not we pay market prices that's our just general approach but as an entrepreneur you have to think about whenever you take capital at a certain price you have to execute flawlessly and the market has to hold. Um, and I don't try and predict the second one, but if you take a massive valuation, if you don't execute flawlessly, you're not gonna be around for long. Or if the market changes, you're gonna have to deal with that. So we wanna pay our fair prices, but we also caution folks, like, just be careful. Yeah, well, and, and so seeing a lot of these, like my friends in New York who are raising, you know, they have a product that's half put together at a you know twenty five million dollar valuation, they've barely done anything um, because all the money is floating around crypto right now. I, I look at that, I'm like, you guys, if you don't do something in a year, like you're done. I yeah. mean, what, what are you going to spend five million dollars on right now? It's two people. Yep. They don't need five million dollars, right? There's only so much you can do in crypto at the moment, right? We talked about this. There's only like the infrastructure's not there. Yep. And so you can't grow that fast, and it worries me a little bit for them. But it's also at the same time, it's what makes the space take off. Well, right? and it's also, you know, I, I think I tell entrepreneurs Tom, I was like, listen, if you can get the capital at a extreme valuation and keep your dilution down, I mean, yeah. the other thing mm-hmm. I pound, I say all the time, which is anti-venture capitalist, is nothing's worse than building a really big business and owning a little, nothing, coming up with a great idea. Yeah. Building a massive business, it drives me crazy. And you look and, you know, like the person owns a couple percentages of it. Yeah, we, were well, we, we were talking about DoorDash today. The, yeah. You know, they just IPO'd and I, what do you, what yeah, do you owe, 4%? 4%, 3%. 4%, 4%. Yeah. yeah. Now, again, the number may be so big that 4% is still. It's a ton of money. Like, a ton a of money. Like Bezos' 12% is a lot, of, yeah. a lot of money. Yeah, but but just, you know, dilution catches up with you. Sure. And, I, I you know, it's like a lot of, see a lot of, Earlier, people raising money through a safe and having, you know, well, I can do a safe and I got this note. It's like, ah, that's just delaying dilution. And, and so, I don't know. I'm passionate about entrepreneurship. I want to make, you know, money, economic gains for my investors. But at the end of the day, I want entrepreneurs to end up having a massive outcome for themselves. One of my great mentors said, as an investor, you do well if your entrepreneurs do amazingly well. Mm-hmm. And that's how I would think about it. And, and so, that really interesting you bring this up because one of the biggest problems I have with decentralized finance right now is kind of a lot of the economic activity that happens there is financed via effectively equity sales to pump these protocols up through their tokens, yep. right? Yep, yep, yep. Um, and they reserve, say, 20% max for their team, right? It's just comprised of a bunch of anonymous developers around the world. Maybe it's a big team sitting in New York, whatever it is. Um, but like, what in your mind is the biggest negative to kind of immediately, within six months of execution, diluting yourself 80%? Um, like what is it the 
lack of upside? Is it the lack of payout at the end of it that, that maybe disincentivizes people to work really hard for the five, 10 years that it's going to take to make it a billion dollar? Yeah, I mean, I, I, if I understand the question, I'm thinking it's more the latter, which is, I think one of the things that's gotten lost, um, now I sound like I'm really old and my cane and my walker, <laughs> but absent, absent a few categories, this shit takes a long time. Yeah. Like there's just no other way to put it. Yeah. Um, and, and, and real, business creation. My favorite entrepreneur book um, is uh, Shoe Dog by Phil Knight. Great book. How do I recommend it? Because what, what you realize is how long it took mm-hmm. and, and, and to become Nike, for, for those who don't know who Phil Knight is, but you know, it just is a long slog and real economic wealth is created over a long period of time. Like Michael Dell here in Austin is a phenomenal example, right? How long has he been at it? What has he gone through? But now look where he is. And so when I think about dilution, it's more around sometimes the easy path to do is to take a bunch of capital quickly. Mm-hmm. And if it can accelerate you, and listen, there are some industries where capital is a, is a strategic weapon right up there with the top market talent. grabbing. Like, yeah, like we've got one here. And we've got, like, it's like you're like, yep, you need capital because that's where the game is going to. But I think it's more along the lines of, does it also bring in the risk of sloppiness? Yeah. So yeah. too much capital, too fast. And like I did WeWork, see this at Loud Cloud. <laughs> What's that? So like WeWork maybe? Yeah, like, well, WeWork's a great example. Yeah. <laughs> uh, great quote about that book, right? Adam Newman said that the prime minister of Israel wasn't a big enough job for him. He didn't think it would be challenging enough. <laughs> yeah. Like, talk about hubris. Yep. But, but we saw it at Loud Cloud way back when where we had a bunch of money and and Ben was an amazing leader, but first time CEO, it's like, well, did, did, were we able to establish a culture? Were you able to establish the norms that you need? Do you have the right hiring things, even in a distributed uh, business or however you're gonna do it, but like these things really do matter. Mm-hmm. And my concern on the entrepreneur side is too much capital, just like too much of anything can create bad habits yeah. Yeah. Uh, culturally. I think, I think we're kind of seeing that in our own um, in our own venture, uh, we haven't raised too much. Like, I think we have raised the perfect amount, and because of that, we're just very efficient, yep. and we're not like drowning and buying stupid stuff because, like, you know, we think we need it. And we're able to to kind of, but like, I mean, I guess we could have gone out and raised a lot more money, but luckily, you know, kind of made that decision that like, no, this is what we need yep. right now. And I, like you said, we haven't diluted ourselves big time because we actually had a, another one of our. Um, one of, the, one of the guys we interviewed um, early on, he said that one of his biggest regrets was giving up as much equity as he gave up. And he just recently, um, you know, has been kind of going through some of those processes. And I think that that's kind of coming back yeah. a little bit. So, you know, it's, it's, all, it's a long game. Yeah. Yeah, it is. Um, the, the last question that we like to ask everybody that comes on is, it's a very simple question, but everybody has a different answer. Simply, why are you an entrepreneur? Well, I'm an entrepreneur. Um, I just, uh, I, I don't, uh, I guess I've said it a couple of times, I don't think there's a better job in the world. Yeah. I really don't. Yeah. I really don't. And even, you know, like being an entrepreneur as a venture capitalist, to be clear, never compares to when I was actually an entrepreneur running a business. Um, I sleep a lot better at night. Yeah. I, don't, I, don't, I, don't wake, <laughs> I don't wake up at three in the morning anymore going, fuck. Yeah. You know, how are we going to make payroll or, um, you know, the wins will never be as things, but it's still something about creating. Like, I, I don't think there's any better job if you're not a, if you're not a gifted artist. It is about creative. I think one of y'all said that early on. It's a creative. Like, can you imagine that you could just sit here with a whiteboard? Like, how, how fucking lucky are we in the world, right? Like, let's step back. I'm not going to, like, play the national anthem. Um, <laughs> but I could. Because, like, we're in, a, we're in America. We're, we're incredibly blessed. Like, you can have the opportunity right here to take a whiteboard 
and draw something up and think, I want to go from A to B. And here's how I see the world, and I want this worldview. I want others to understand it. And with enough grit and enough intelligence and hard work, and yes, connections, and I'm sitting here as a privileged position, I totally get that. But there's no other place in the world you'd rather be. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that that's just not a patriotic statement, but I mean, it's just a time and energy. And so I feel like the opportunity to create and build something, and then most importantly, and you said it about your, you mentioned the sports analogy, it's like, nothing's better. I think about all my memories of being an entrepreneur and you know whatever, it's like, I remember more so the time of sitting around with my team Mm -hmm. and either times of crisis, like holy blank, what are we going to do about this? Or I'll never forget, I get goosebumps still thinking about like signing a big customer we didn't think we were going to. And like, I'll never remember, we're like off like seven o'clock and my head of sales came in. He's like, holy cow, we just signed it. And like 10 of us are like high-fiving and that that part of it, other than my brief experience back in high school, mm-hmm. Hugh Bruce Springsteen, glory days now, I'd love to tell you about my high school basketball career, but we're running out of time. But like <laughs> that moment is, I, I don't think you replicate it yeah. outside of sports. And so I, I just, again, long-winded way to say, I don't think there's a better job in the world. I wrote the book because I wanted people to understand though, it is hard. And I think going into it without the proper mental framework is just as dangerous as mm. um, you know, not doing, not chasing your dreams. Yeah. Two ends of spectrum. Absolutely. Well, Mike, we really appreciate you. Yeah, thanks. A lot of fun. Um, where can you know if, if people want to learn more about yourself, uh, your book, Next Coast Ventures? Plug all of those social plug away. names. Plug yeah. Away. So the book, I got to do this because it. I always get uh, so Mr. Monkey and Me, a real survival guide for entrepreneurs, is available on Amazon. Most importantly, every dollar of the book goes to support a charity that my wife and I set up. It, the charity is 100% focused on getting diverse and underrepresented students who want to study entrepreneurship, a scholarship at Miami of Ohio. There so go, go there we house. go. <laughs> so so uh, where your brother plays football, but that that is the main reason we wrote the book and that's where all the proceeds go, but it's on Amazon. My website is Mike Smirklo, S-M-E-R-K-L-O.com. There's a bunch of uh, materials there about entrepreneurship, the mental aspect of it. And then Next Coast Ventures is just under that domain name. All right, guys. Uh, If you want to continue this discussion, follow us on our social media. Our Instagram, LinkedIn, Facebooks will all be in the description of this episode. Hop on there, shoot us a DM, hit us up with whatever concerns, questions, comments that you guys have. We'd love to continue building that community on there. Next, subscribe to wherever you're listening to this. iTunes, Spotify, Google, Amazon, Overcast, you name it. We got it. And the only other thing I'm going to add is... As you're subscribing to those platforms, hop on there, give us rates and reviews, especially on Apple Podcasts, five-star ratings and a uh, and, and a comment go a really long way. Helps us continue to to climb up the charts and you know continue to to spread this to to all corners of the world and allow us to continue to bring on great guests. We really appreciate you guys for everything and we're excited to see you next week.